0: Hello Immigrantly listeners, welcome back to your favourite show. I am Sadia Khan, your host. And guess what? I have an interesting game for you today. Grab a pen and paper or open your notes up. I'll wait. Do you have it? Now write down the first word that comes to mind when you hear immigrant. Immigrant. I am so curious to know what you guys have written, but I bet soldier or military wasn't the word for many of you. But today we are diving into this topic. We'll talk about the complicated connections between being an immigrant and serving in the military.
1: The Army and Air Force are looking to immigrants to overcome recruiting shortfalls.
0: Pretty simple trade-off. How about service for citizenship, the military, says they want legal immigrants to address recruiting shortfalls.
1: But the biggest draw for migrants is the promise of a fast track to citizenship, plus jobs and education benefits.
0: Recruiters are using social media to reach new candidates. For example, this Facebook page to recruit members to the Air Force from Nepal. And just an FII, some people may be uncomfortable with this conversation. For others, it may reinforce what they knew all along. It's a difficult conversation. It's messy, it's complicated, it's layered. But you know what? It is so, so important to have these conversations, to challenge the narratives, because I truly believe that curiosity fuels human brain. And we may not always agree, but it's important to have these critical conversations for us to understand the world that we operate in. And with that, I would like to introduce our today's guest. She is Dr. Sophia Abtikar, an Associate Professor of Urban Studies at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. Her research consists of different sectors of sociological analysis from observing gentrification and the public in Astoria, Queens, in New York City, to immigration and the military complex. Her latest book, entitled Green Card Soldier, covers the complexities within the U.S. military system. We talked about so many things, from toxic masculinity, military being revered and sacrosanct, to why immigrants join the military. And I can't wait to share this important conversation with all of you. So let's get started. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on Immigrantly. We are finally doing this. I'm really looking forward to it. The first time we connected was when? In summer? Yes, it's been a couple of months. It's been a couple of months. Things have happened. I had to move schedules. You were traveling. But let me tell you, I am blown away by the work that you're doing. I've been interviewing people since 2018 and... I have never come across this complicated intersectionality, which is immigrant identity and military, until I started reading your book and doing research. But before we get into that, for listeners who don't know you, can you talk a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Oh, thank you, Sadia. And thank you for reading my book. I am an urban studies professor at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. But I'm also an immigrant. I was born in the Soviet Union, and I came to the United States, to New York, uh, when I was 12. So I went to middle school and high school in New York. I'm a sociologist, and my research is uh, largely about immigrants and different aspects of the immigrant experience and the U.S. immigration system. And, uh, yeah, I'm so excited to talk about my new book, The Green Card Soldier, Retired Major General Paul Eaton led the US Army effort to train the Iraqi military in the early 2000s. He says at a time when the US military is struggling to meet recruitment goals, welcoming immigrants to serve is essential.
0: They tend to be very high performers. It's an interesting title, Green Card Soldier, right? And there are a lot of topics that you delve in the book, but something that really stood out to me was this connection or intersectionality between debt, military, and immigration. In your book and also in one of your conversations on Zoom with Debt Collective, you call it poverty draft. Can you talk a little bit about this intersectionality?
1: Absolutely. And you know, Poverty draft is a controversial concept. So the idea is that U.S. military doesn't have an actual draft like it did, let's say, during the Vietnam War. But that we have a de facto poverty draft in the sense that young people are pushed into military service because of economic constraints, hopes to pay for college or just to have a decent job with benefits. So this kind of an economic push. And it can be controversial for several reasons. One, because actually the most marginalized youth in the United States don't qualify to join the military because it's not like you just walk up and join. There are tests to pass and, you know, you have to be physically healthy, which we know the people experiencing poverty are less likely to be healthy enough. So actually the most disadvantaged people are not able to join the military. So, you know, there's controversy about this term.
0: So talk to me a little bit about... Who joins them based on financial needs?
1: Right. And I want to come back to, you know, the intersectionality lens that, you know, you had in your first question, because my book is about immigrants. And one of the things that I wanted to learn was why do immigrants join the U.S. military and how do they think about it? Before you answer that, Sophia,
0: I couldn't even make that connection of immigrants joining the military, which is weird. Military as an institution is almost sacrosanct. It's revered, right? And to think that a country that dehumanizes immigrants so much is okay with immigrants joining their military, that to me was a shocker.
1: Oh, that's so interesting because like in my mind, that's part of the story, right? If we are living in a society that, um, you know, in some ways is having a war on immigrants, then to prove yourself as the most deserving kind of immigrant or yeah. the model immigrant which is the subtitle of my book like you have to do things like this
0: the good immigrant
1: you know the good immigrant story like the bar is higher and higher and higher you have to you know sign an 8 year contract to be in the US military to prove that you're you know one of the good ones Oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I spoke to 70 plus uh, immigrants who enlisted in the U.S. military, you know, in recent decades to try to find out, you know, what kind of drove them to do it. And there were many factors. Economic factors were very important. Both, you know, people wanted to go to college, people who had no plans to go to college, but wanted a job. People who had gone to college and couldn't find a job, especially during the Great Recession. But there were, you know, immigrant kind of complications on that story. That's true for a lot of people, regardless of immigration status. I talked to some people whose families were really struggling because of immigration reasons. Like there was one young woman whose brother was facing deportation. And so the family was spending a lot of money on immigration attorneys to try to fight the case. And so when she enlisted, she, you know, got a signing bonus and that really helped her family try to you know, keep her brother from being deported. So that's an immigration kind of twist on a general story of economic factors.
0: So you're talking about this girl from Pakistan who basically got 10000 in signing bonus, which went towards deportation case of her brother. And when I was thinking about that, to me, it seems like in some instances, military can be predatory, right? Because It's leveraging people's circumstances to encourage them to join military, especially in this case, because it seems like the girl
1: would not have joined otherwise, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's also why, you know, the military is very concerned about raising the minimum wage because then uh, they become less competitive. And in the case of immigrants, there is a promise of fast-track to citizenship that attracts some immigrants to the military who wouldn't have otherwise done that as well.
0: Since 2008, the Defense Department has offered immigrants who join up an accelerated path to citizenship. Instead, they may be getting the opposite. A backlog in security screening for foreign-born recruits has cost many of them their legal immigration status while they wait which means that they could end up getting kicked out of the country they signed up to serve. So, if you're in military, how long does it take to get citizenship then?
1: It's actually pretty long now. So it's it's, it's a promise that's not realized today, but there was a short period between about 2007 and 2017 where the promises did match reality for a lot of people because as many of you listeners know, the immigration system is kind of a labyrinth and difficult to navigate and all kinds of things happen, paperwork gets lost, lots of appointments. Uh, That's really difficult to combine with military life. You are transferred between bases, you may be abroad, your address is changing, right? That's difficult if you're an immigrant. And then you might have an interview at the USCIS office that's, you know, six hours away from your base. And it's really hard to take time off when you're a military worker. So the two systems are not set up to work well together. So even Though you qualify for citizenship, you know soon after enlisting, the reality is much more complicated. If some people never get it through the military; they wait until they come out. But it is something that's advertised as a perk. And some people that I've met, not a lot of people, I have to say, but some people usually they had some kind of special circumstances, like an ailing family member that they really wanted to sponsor, and they wanted to you know just get it done as quickly as possible. But it can take a while.
0: So in your book, on page 100, I believe, you talk about military as a tool for integration, but you say that it's not integration into the privileges and rights that are afforded to white people or native-born. It is an integration into the global empire. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of research on that that really shows that even though there are narratives about the U.S. military being better about race, people having more of a chance and less discrimination, the, the evidence shows that in you know, many aspects of military life and work, there is racial discrimination. So things like promotion things like military justice, right? The U.S. military has its own separate justice system and it is discriminatory the way the criminal justice system is in the civilian world in terms of the risks of uh, getting PTSD because of the work that you do in the military is also unequal by race. So there is kind of, you know, a tension between a lot of people's perception of the military as like a place that gives more of a chance to people of color, but a lot of the research shows otherwise. I do write about the idea of immigrants integrating into the U.S. society through the military because there are many commentators and even some researchers who see it that way, that that's a chance for an immigrant to become like a real American. But I wanted to take it apart and see, like, what are they actually integrating to? Hmm. Military is obviously like a very hierarchical institution, unequal by race. And then what does the military do Right. If we look at, you know, the spread of the U.S. military across the globe and the ways that it has devastated communities, infrastructures, the largest polluter in the world, you're integrating into that.
0: The prime example is the U.S. military. It is the planet's largest institutional consumer of petroleum. Also the single largest producer of greenhouse gases. Sample this. From two thousand one to twenty seventeen, the US military produced around one point two billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions.
1: Four hundred million. So tons you are integrating into these you know harmful hierarchies and becoming a foot soldier or cog in this machine of empire. So what does it mean?
0: for a person of color to be enrolled in military?
1: Well, you know, I talked to all kinds of people, and for some of them, you know, that meant a solid job with benefits and, you know, maybe using college benefits when they came out, or even at the same time going to college. So that's part of the story in terms of like what people say. In my book, I have a lot of stories of normalization of microaggression, Kind of racist humor and all the way to like violence that's targeting people of color in different ways. But even the people who are victims of it are kind of just explaining it away and normalizing it because there's just such a culture of hiding it and minimizing it. So, for example, I talked to people who were perceived to be Muslims, whether or not they were, mm. the way that they face suspicion. And, you know, jokes about being terrorists and just lack of trust from their coworkers, which can be really detrimental. It can be devastating. And if you're relying on those around you to keep you safe in this type of a workplace That's a huge risk. That was the case for women, too, right? Mm. The women that I spoke to, so many of them were... It's such a difficult situation because they're trying to prove themselves. The women who participated in the survey described a tireless effort to prove themselves daily. However, men surveyed say they were hesitant or afraid to interact with women in their units out of fear of being accused of harassment, assault, or having an inappropriate relationship. Some of them are also seen as like just inherently foreign and probably a terrorist just because of their race and where they're from and their accent. And they're facing, you know, sexual harassment and violence from their coworkers. So it's just from every side, incredibly stressful situation.
0: And just for listeners, when we talk about these things, we are talking about military as an institution. We are not targeting specific people We are seeing practices and structures and systems that exist within military. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people who've benefited from military service. There are veterans who are proud to be part of military. But it's also important to look at what's happening within this broader system to people who are different from the dominant population. Sophia, I do want to expand this conversation a little more because this also ties in To the idea of toxic masculinity. And in your book, you talk about this Russian immigrant, Nikolai, who basically is targeting East Asian military soldiers and he is making racist remarks.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm glad you picked up on that example. It was so striking. Like, masculinity is such a huge part of the story. So many immigrants, you know, were telling me that becoming a man was you know part of why they joined and it was very shaped by race so there is perceptions of asian men as inadequate right mm. as men and doubts cast on their masculinity was playing out in these stories so nikolai or it's not of his real name was trying to join the military very hard but because of his immigration situation he was experiencing obstacles and he was targeting his anger at Asian American soldiers by casting doubt on their masculinity. So he was making fun of someone that he was friends with on Facebook who did successfully enlist and was from an Asian country, saying, like, look at him now. He thinks he's Terminator. And Terminator is a character played by a white man, Hmm. (laughs) making fun of, like, there's no way this Asian man can ever embody the type of masculinity I could embody as a white man. And here they are letting him join up before me.
0: Sophia, do you think racism and toxic masculinity can ever be taken away from a system or an institution like military?
1: no. I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to say I do not, because it goes back to what you said in the beginning of our conversation, Sadia, about how military is celebrated. And as an institution in American society, that's part of militarism in our society, where we don't ask questions about what the military does. The critiques that we have are at the edges. But what I try to do is to critique the nature of what the military does itself. And also go back to its history, you know, its start as a force to perpetuate genocide on indigenous people, to crush rebellions of African slaves. From that time to today, if we look at what the military does, white supremacy, heteromasculinity are at the center of the institution itself. So I do not think that it's possible because of the work that it does. Do you think... There can
0: be reformation because there are two things, right? Abolition versus reformation. Now, I don't think abolition is going to happen, but what about reformation?
1: You know, that's an argument lots of folks are having about the police, about prisons. Right, but less so about the military and how do we have non reformist reforms? for the military that just don't make it like more acceptable or, you know, slightly less bad for the workers. I like the term less bad because right now we
0: are compromising
1: (laughs) on less bad. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a slippery slope there. One thing that I've been thinking about recently is shrinking the footprint of the military in the sense of in our society, it's very normalized to have the military assume more and more and more functions. Oh, my gosh.
0: I thought that was only Pakistan, where military did everything.
1: <laughs> Not just Pakistan. You know, why is it the military that's like on the border with it, so all its equipment? Why is the military guarding like migrant shelters in my Brooklyn neighborhood? Why is the military involved in public health and, and getting people tested for COVID three years ago? Like there's all these things That we have the military do. And and sometimes people say, like, well, that's great. They're so organized, they'll get it done. But it's just spreading more and more and more and more and more.
0: You know, it's so interesting you say that because I hear similar arguments in Pakistan about the military. They are organized, they get work done, they are better than corrupt politicians. Same arguments, same line of reasoning. And it's mind boggling because when I see the U.S., I basically see our democratic values. Now, obviously, democracy in U.S. is messy and it is becoming messier. But I never saw military as an absolute or obvious part of the democratic process But now that you and I are having this conversation, maybe I am
1: naive. Well, I don't think you're naive, Sadi. I think like it's really hard to have critical conversations about the military. You know, our society has these very pervasive and powerful messages about the military that it's hard to open that door to that critique. Kind of going back a little bit to your earlier questions, we also have to remember. I don't know how it is in Pakistan, but in the U.S. The amount of money that the military spends on marketing and branding and paying for, you know, positive portrayals of the military in Hollywood movies.
0: Then it's a dogfight.
1: An F 14 against fifth gen fighters. It's not the plane, it's the pilot. Come on, math. Don't think, just do. <sighs> you know, football games and recruiters in high schools, recruiters in video games, like contacting the really young kids playing online video games. Like it's the tentacles are everywhere and a lot of money is behind it. Talking about tentacles and a lot of money,
0: what really blew my mind away was when you talk about how it's not in military's favor to have debt relief for students. And that was a connection that I could never make. Talk to me about that. Why is debt relief, debt forgiveness, bad for military?
1: So the movement to cancel student debt, for example, if we cancel student debt and made college free, that would eliminate the economic push to join the military for a lot of people. So the military is already experiencing a pretty dire recruitment crisis. Because our economy right now, people have other options and also because a lot of people don't qualify, even though they keep expanding who can join up and providing debt relief, canceling student debt and other kinds of debt would make it less likely that people will enlist.
0: Sophia, but in addition to financial reasons, I'm sure there are non-financial reasons, right? We've talked about one, which is masculinity. Now, we call it toxic masculinity, but for a lot of people, if they want to man up, oh my gosh, I just hate this term, but if they want to man up, they join the military, right? If they want to show their patriotism, as you said, they want to join military. That's what I That's what decided to join the army and you can't pick that bagger. Shut, your, Shut, mouth. Your, mouth. Shut your mouth. It becomes a guidepost for people to express their patriotism, their commitment to American democracy through war and through destruction in a way, because we see that American military at the end of the day is also expanding the American empire in many ways. And you talk about that. There are 750 bases, U.S. military bases in 80 countries. In your book, you talk about individuals, how they are impacted, and then You broaden your discussion to talk about how countries are impacted. But I am trying to understand how do we synthesize this information and where do we go from here?
1: First of all, I really love how you summarized it and and how it's really important to emphasize that economic factors do play a very important role. But that's not it. Right. So toxic masculinity patriotism kind of desire to feel like you belong as an immigrant like that's maybe what's finally going to make you feel that way by wearing a a uniform or honestly like you are interested in guns that is also a reason people join up and that is something you brought from your home country where you were maybe had family in the military there and that kind of masculinity and militarism crosses the border with your family. And then, you know, you still think along those lines. All of that really matters. And in terms of like, what do we do with this? So in my book, I write that I'm not gonna end with a laundry list of policy recommendation to make the military less bad for immigrants, even though I had, you know, just spent considerable time showing some of the harms and the injuries. Because I think that that adds to the militarization of our society to tinker a the And what I want to do is to open up conversations that critique what the military does. And, you know, not so long in U.S. history, we were able to have these conversations, right, like during the Vietnam War, where you could support veterans and care about their well-being at the same time as acknowledging the harm that they, you know, perpetrated on People bearing the brunt of U.S. empire abroad and at home. What I want to do is welcome and invite these types of really important critical conversations to rethink the role of the military in the world. This is a very critical time to do that for so many reasons. And not the least of them is... uh, the climate collapse and, you know, in the news recently, you know, we've heard about the devastating water pollution on the military base in Hawaii and how that's, you know, really hurt military workers that are in their families on that base. But, you know, that example helps us think about uh, the military across the globe, yeah, if military like personnel themselves are getting so affected by it. And that's just one of hundreds of examples of toxic exposure chemicals in and around military bases in the U.S. Like when you we look at what happens across the globe, wherever U.S. military is, there are devastating environmental consequences to the communities as well. When we look at the global picture, there's so many concerns. And what I found fascinating was that sometimes immigrants end up in the U.S. military because what happened in their home communities, obviously, because they may have become immigrants because of the U.S. military, but also because maybe their parents worked as contractors on these military bases. And so they already had a connection to U.S. military and then they migrated and it was kind of a natural next step. So the octopus is global. Right.
0: Sophia, I wanted to go back to what you said about the Vietnam War, and why people were having conversations about the role of military. And I wonder if it had more to do with the fact that military service was a duty, it was an obligation, because there was a requirement of draft versus now, where the majority of the population is not directly impacted by military, actions of military. It's almost a disconnect that allows them to revere military, but also not see the harms that military can cause.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When the draft was eliminated in 1973 and it became an all-volunteer force, military labor is confined to kind of a small portion of the population. It's about 1% people who have served in the military. And then you can think about their families as well like most important predictors of joining the military is having someone in your family be in the military. So it's like a legacy, you know, so kids and grandkids of service members are the ones who are far more likely to enlist than other people or living close to a base also. So I completely agree with you that it makes it easier for people who are not in the military to just, you know, have this kind of a superficial take on it you know we honor our military we thank them but it's kind of happening to someone else elsewhere
0: it's happening to somebody else somebody else's kids are dying and it's okay because we can just celebrate the institution or what it embodies and again this is not unique to the u.s i grew up in pakistan and believe it or not everybody in pakistan still reveres military. It's like military can do no harm, military can do no wrong. Although I think in Pakistan, it's changing now. I also want to talk a little bit about sense of belonging. You've talked about how a lot of people join military, because they want to belong. And for immigrants, it is so important, right? Because a lot of immigrants just want to belong. Can you share numbers with
1: us, Sophia, in terms of how many immigrants are in the military? It can be a little bit tricky because also the way the military <laughs> keeps or doesn't keep track of people's citizenship. But a good number that I'd like to think about is about 4% of first-time military recruits are non-citizens. And of course, more are immigrants who are U.S. citizens.
0: Let's talk about sense of belonging.
1: I want to highlight
0: something that you again say in your book when talking about posthumous citizenship given to immigrant soldiers who've died. Let that sink in. And you write, and I quote, The granting of posthumous citizenship without consent to deceased military workers evokes the history of the imposition of U.S. citizenship on Mexican, Puerto Rican, and indigenous people as a way to bring them under imperial control, defeat their own national formations, and draft them into the military. Unquote. Can you expand on this statement, Sophia, and the similarity between the military draft and colonialism, especially in this case? And can you also elaborate what posthumous citizenship means for listeners who may not be aware?
1: Yeah. And I will tell you that I became aware of it at a naturalization ceremony that I was attending for a much earlier research project. And at that naturalization ceremony, there was a family of a soldier who had been killed in uh, Afghanistan. And the family was presented with the certificate of citizenship because they were making him a citizen after death. So that's costumous naturalization is something that can happen to a soldier who is killed in the line of duty. And, you know, I write about the nuances of it because for some families, this is very important, significant thing that can happen in their grieving process, but also has practical implications, like it might protect some of them from deportation through this kind of weird status. So it extends to the families. The families have some limited benefits from it, even though the person is dead. And for some families, it kind of opens up additional wounds. How so? Well, you know, he was good enough to fight and to have this happen to him. And now you give him citizenship. You know, why did this happen? Why did my child uh, have to be sent to fight this war? What is this war really for? Who's benefiting from it and who is paying the costs? of these wars. And that's where it connects to U.S. empire and colonialism in terms of the imposition of citizenship on people who don't have a say in this case because they are dead. Mm. You know, Puerto Ricans got U.S. citizenship in 1917, which allowed the U.S. to draft Puerto Ricans to fight in World War One. The imposition of citizenship on Native Americans, and it's It's a complicated story, but many people really were opposed to becoming U.S. citizens Mm. because of the fight for their citizenship in their own nations, which they have. Right. So it's kind of a violent status imposed on you by uh, the imperial force that has won. Right. It's like a different way of thinking of it than the way we often think about this gets you more rights. That means you belong. That means you're included. But it's also used as a tool, as an imperial tool of absorbing people into the United States who don't necessarily want to be part of it because they have their own nation, whether it be the indigenous nations, whether it be in the case of Puerto Rico and other places.
0: Sophia, what role do you want your research to play in influencing people's attitudes towards military? What do you want people to take away from this book?
1: A couple of things come to mind very concretely. As an immigrant myself, I hope that my book just helps other immigrants and members of our communities have a more realistic sense of what it might be like if you or your kid or your cousin enlisted in the military is an immigrant. So I want it to be a tool for counter-recruitment into the military in our immigrant communities. There's a lot of counter-recruitment work. I think I can engage more specifically with the way the military targets our immigrant communities for recruitment and how we might respond. So that's like a very concrete hope of mine. And another hope uh, for the book is that it helps us have critical conversations about U.S. militarism and U.S. empire And use it to push against the stories of the good immigrant, which you talk a lot about (laughs) on, on your podcast, to critically push back against the way that these stories about what you must do to become a good immigrant, right? You're always in debt. You always have to be doing other stuff. How that unfortunately perpetuates the harms that the military enacts against both its workers who are immigrants and, of course, across the world.
0: Sophia, in the end, this is going to be interesting. How would you define the United States in a word or a sentence?
1: Well, the land currently known as the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I would say an empire full of seeds of resistance, you know, getting ready to blossom. Oh, I love it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love it.
0: Sophia, where can people find your book?
1: It is published by MIT Press. So on MIT Press website, you can purchase it there or any bookseller. I encourage people to use independent booksellers like Bookshop. And it's called Green Card Soldier Between Model Immigrant and Security Threat.
0: Thank you so much, Sophia, for coming, for making us think. There's a lot for us to process. And I'm glad we had this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me, Sadie. And thanks for the podcast.
0: I know today's conversation wasn't easy. Look, I get it. I grew up in Pakistan. We revered military. Military is sacrosanct in many countries, including the US. And this conversation is not about individuals in the military, people who are sacrificing their lives, who are dying for safeguarding American democratic values. This is about the institution. And in the words of one of my previous guests, Umar Dakhil, it's important for us to be curious. It's important for us to question. Questioning fuels human brain. And that's exactly what we did with this episode. Now, some of you may completely disagree with our conversation. For others, it may really ring true. But write to me and tell me what your thoughts are. Whoever you are, wherever you are, Wherever you're listening to this conversation, reach out to me at sadia at immigrantlypod.com. This episode was produced by me, written by Bobak Afshari and me. The editorial review was done by Shea Yu. Our theme music is by Simon Hutchinson. Our editor for this podcast episode is Varumar Come back next week when we have another important conversation. And always be curious and keep asking questions.